I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by one of our regular guests, Daniel Harrigus, senior editor for Strong Towns. Hello, Daniel. Welcome. Hey, Abby. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. I hope you had a relaxing and and nice. Uh, Nice holiday break with the kiddos. So, yeah. Other than the flat tire in rural Virginia on the oh, way home <laughs> from up north, we were good. Um, okay, so you you suffered through some traveling. Um, got through it. Got yeah, through it that's good. Kids and nobody died. So, what else can you ask for? Yeah, it sounds like you weren't flying though, so that's good. You didn't we have to suffer through. <laughs> we we weren't grounded on Southwest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounded like that was a nightmare. Well, we have a really interesting story today that was published in NPR by Mary Yang. It's entitled America Needs Carpenters and Plumbers. Gen Z doesn't seem interested. Um, so for the purposes of this conversation, I know there's a lot of debate on how to define Gen Z, but they are defining it as people who are born between 1997 and 2012. And according to the article, they are on track to be the most educated generation ever. This means that fewer young people are training for and entering into skilled trades and technical industries and instead are opting for the conventional four-year university path. Despite the lack of people to do these jobs, the number of jobs in these industries still continue to grow. So there's a high demand. Um, according to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Economics Committee, there is a massive shortage of skilled workers that are expected to impact the economy in 2023. And one of the things that the NPR article really goes into um, and attributes this problem to is our society's overall narrative about skilled trades, um, saying that it's a big part of the problem and that many young people are instead encouraged to take this college path in order to get white collar or computer oriented jobs. Right now, we have 45 million people in the United States that owe nearly $1.3 trillion in student debt. So obviously, that is a major conventional path for most people. And even with equal or higher pay and potentially no student loan debt, there's still people who are very hesitant to kind of take this path. And if the narrative doesn't shift, we might see shortages that could impact people's daily lives from agriculture to infrastructure to transportation. So Daniel, I feel like at Strong Towns, we we talk a lot about kind of land use and development issues. And I'm curious from your perspective, how you see this overall employment and industry narrative weaving in to the Strong Towns analysis. It is a huge deal for for development, I mean, for infrastructure, you've got um, various sorts of people in the trades who who are part of that pipeline. But particularly for building construction and especially residential construction, you know, the whole conversation about the housing shortage nationally and the affordable housing crisis, um, this is a huge topic. And it's actually one that gets underplayed 
when you talk to housing people, I think you're talking to a lot of people who are in this public policy world. Maybe they have a master's degree in public policy. They're very focused on public policy. And it's surprising how often it doesn't enter the conversation that there is a colossal shortage of carpenters, plumbers, electricians, HVAC people. Um, and there has been for quite a while. I actually don't quite buy into the NPR narrative that this is all about Gen Z or about generational differences. I think there's a little more to it than there. We can get into that. Yeah, in terms of how it touches on our work at Strong Towns, um, it touches on the housing issue really, really dramatically. And it's weird to me how underplayed it is because you will see advocates out there, you'll see like the yes in my backyard, the Yimby folks laying out these housing targets like, oh, well, to solve the shortage and to bring supply and demand in line with each other and moderate rent increases, we need to double or triple housing production in America's high cost metro areas. And, you know, you can come up with a spreadsheet or whatever that says that, but you're going to need a lot of plumbers and carpenters to do that. And we don't have them. That is one of the biggest under-discussed reasons why um, the surge of housing supply that everybody's talking about needing, like, is not on the verge of happening. Hmm. Yeah, th to me, the the Gen Z framing of this conversation felt a little bit like the millennials are now off the hook for a little while. We were being blamed for everything, and we were kind of in the headlines, the clickbait. Um, and now it's Gen Z's turn. We can kind of blame everything on them. It's really easy now to write a think piece about like what Gen Z is is doing wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure this will just continue, continue, but we'll keep doing that um, as long as we have media, I'm sure. Um, but, but yeah, I think more seriously, I mean, I think they're right that there is kind of this long standing uh, scarcity of skilled trades um, that has been going on for a long time, not just because of Gen Z. And I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons for it. Uh, I think there's a lot of perception issues. There's probably, you know, industry viability um, concerns that people have. I mean, realistically, there's some volatility. I think that turns people off from skilled trades because when a recession happens, if you're a plumber, you may not, you might be out of work. And so, I think that there's a lot of different factors that play into this. It's not all because of Gen Z. Um, and, you know, more recently, they, they kind of look at the impact of COVID and retirements and res resignations that we've seen. And we've covered a story in the past on that topic as it relates to housing. Um, there's some data that is showing that that is having a pretty significant impact on construction and that industry of actually building buildings. And I think a lot of us in that industry are actually experiencing that and seeing that with our own eyes. But, you know, Daniel, offline, we were talking a little bit about employment shifts during the Great Recession and, and how this has been going on for quite a while. Can you talk about that a little bit? I was surprised not to see any mention of that in this piece from NPR, because that's immediately where my mind goes when I think about labor shortages in the skilled trades specifically. Um, there's this weird historical amnesia in a lot of ways about the Great Recession. Um, like, we don't want to remember what it was like in 2009, 2010, 2011. If you look at the data on construction, like, it is not an exaggeration to say that new construction in the U.S. almost ground to a halt for several years. You look at housing starts and they fell to like 10% of 
what they had been just a couple of years earlier. Like that was how complete the shutdown was in that industry. Well, you had like a five-year period where people in the trades couldn't find work nearly as easily and older people retired early and new people didn't enter those professions. We're still experiencing the hangover of that. And um, it's very strange to me that you would write a piece about labor shortages in the skilled trades and not even talk about that once. Because when you talk to people who actually know the construction sector, that's that's a huge part of the story. It's exacerbated by the fact that we've got these kind of broader secular trends, I think, in society where we have really, really pushed the four-year college degree for a long time. Um, schooling has been oriented towards that. We give kids a lot of signals that that's what they should pursue, but also clear direction as to how to pursue that path. There isn't a lot of clear direction as to how you pursue work in something like the trades. Um, and the interesting thing is I've had these experiences. I think everybody has had these experiences. Like you have a plumber or you have an electrician come to your house. These are people who are immensely skilled. They're very professional. They take a lot of pride in the work that they do. And they, and you can make decent money doing this work. Like the narrative that like, this is sort of an overlooked, like good blue collar job in an era when there aren't a lot of good blue collar jobs left. Like there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Um, these are, this is an industry that has relied a lot on word of mouth and social networks to recruit new people into it. Right. Um, and to a lesser extent on family businesses. Yes, totally. Um, recruiting the next generation into it. And those pathways have really kind of broken down. And I think part of the story of why they broke down is you had this period where there was a ton of volatility and there wasn't a lot of work to be had. Um, and now we desperately need these people. And there is this colossal problem where we can't get enough of them interested and we can't get new blood into these fields. Yeah. I, I mean, as somebody who is married to somebody who is in the trades and is was really introduced to the trades because it was his family's business. And, you know, it's what basically several generations of his family has done. Um, I That really resonates with me personally because, I mean, it's really nice that he doesn't have a lot of uh, student loan debt. It's nice that these jobs actually pay well and you can do really interesting and fulfilling work. To me, this is totally, or maybe not totally, but it is in part a serious perception issue that people have because schools are set up to kind of funnel you into universities. And that is definitely not for everybody. Um, there's a lot of people who like to work with their hands. There's a lot of people who want to do kind of more tangible work, things that you can, you know, touch and feel and see. And yeah, it's, it's a very fulfilling line of work. And so I think that there's a lot of issues with the trades that where the trades as an industry probably needs to evolve to become more, I guess, less volatile, more stable. There's, I think, challenges with, you know, when you have such volatility and, and impact on an industry by the broader economy that, you know, you get people suddenly retiring. And even if you have kind of new people funneling in, skilled trades takes skill and many years to kind of build up a skill. And so uh, having some kind of way of institutionalizing the, the pathway to building that skill, I think is important for young people because the four-year university is a very clear path. It's one that I think people are familiar with. 
it feels, I think, more like a sure bet, even though it definitely isn't. <laughs> um, there are many people who get four-year degrees and then never end up using them. So to me, it's it's really about kind of perception and um, representation of jobs. And, and even, you know, I think uh, aligning and, or framing these types of jobs with the gig economy and the opportunities to kind of be your own boss and have your own business. Maybe um, we were looking at an article that John Anderson wrote on this topic and, you know, is talking about how these, the, these types of workers are actually really well positioned to own their own building and, uh, you know, be incremental developers even. So I think all of those things kind of play into this overall discussion um, and I'm sure that there's lots of people who are working on this issue right now, uh, since it is so pressing. So uh, I'm sure there's lots of things that I'm leaving out here. The incremental developer view on this is really interesting. Um, I read the John Anderson piece that you were talking about. Our John Anderson, he's a small scale developer in Georgia outside of Atlanta um, and really, really involved in the community of small scale developers and trying to build those ecosystems of people who do that work. Um, so he'll, he's a real evangelist for this. You know, if you have some of those handy skills, um, if you are a carpenter, if you are a plumber, if you know some of that stuff, you're in a great position to make yourself a small developer, buy a building and rehab it and get a start that way. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to create the networks of people who can help others into that field. Um, and that's a lot of the work that we're really aiming at that you see with organizations like the Incremental Development Alliance. Um, some of the work that I've written about in places like South Bend, Indiana, where the city has taken a role in trying to nurture that whole ecosystem of small scale builders and contractors and the lenders who are going to lend to them and the people in local government who are going to help clear roadblocks for them in terms of the zoning code and, you know, acquiring property and planning a project successfully. Um, there's a whole ecosystem. And we used to have that. We used to have small developers predominantly building America's cities. You know, you visit the row house neighborhoods of cities like Chicago, like Philadelphia, like San Francisco. They were built by small time people who, you know, maybe you were just a carpenter and you bought a building and you, um, you fixed it up and then you had a unit in it to live in. You had some rental income, like that type of entrepreneurship used to be much more common. There are a bunch of roadblocks to doing that these days. Um, but I do think it's important to kind of preserve the the model for what that looks like and to help people see that as a viable path. And it's not going to be for everyone. But you talked about the the notion that a, a four-year college degree isn't what it was a generation or two ago either. It's not your ticket to a comfortable middle-class life. There are a lot of people for whom it isn't. I, I think it's this is a broader topic than we can possibly delve into here, but there's a societal reckoning coming in some form and I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not going to tell you what that form looks like, but you've got a higher education system that is very clearly broken and it's not delivering for people what it was promised to deliver. And the cost of tuition has gone through the roof between our parents' generation and our own, you know, speaking as a millennial, um, you got people younger than me coming up. And I think that they, are a little more clear-eyed about that. When I talk to people who are 20 now, you know, I'm going on 40. When I talk to people who are 20, like whether they're in college or not in college, they don't have a whole lot of illusions about college being the automatic ticket to the good life. Um, so 
at some point, you know, whether it's an economic shock or what triggers it, there is a point where I think people are going to be increasingly drawn to alternative visions of what a stable, respectable, you know, solid career looks like. And one possible vision is, well, we've got communities with a ton of need, communities that have been financially fragile, that have been disinvested in for a long time. There is a need for people who build things. It's not going away. We're not at a point where all that is just automated away. We desperately need people who build things. And building things can be really rewarding work. And you can be invested in literally, you know, making your community stronger, literally building it from the from the ground up. And I think that there's room for a pendulum swing back to a greater number of people doing that kind of work, to to pathways for people to do that kind of work. There are, there are a lot of obstacles too. So I'd like to see people in city halls thinking proactively about to the extent that you have economic development funds that you fund, you know, workforce training programs. Um, what does that look like? And can you make it dovetail with a need for construction in your community with a need for infill to thicken up our neighborhoods and make them more productive places, more walkable places? Um, to, to have more abundant housing and higher quality housing in your community. Um, there are a lot of different ways in which this is a public policy issue and a lot of different entry points, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it really, reading this NPR article made me think a lot about um, the piece that, that you've uh, written about kind of bringing in a swarm of people around incremental development and by swarm, meaning that it does take an ecosystem to actually reinvest in communities and skilled trades are a huge part of that. It's not just one person as part of that puzzle and it does take nurturing. And I think that that's a really important piece of, of kind of reorienting the conversation around skilled trades you mentioned, you know, kind of the entrepreneurialism that was there, you know, many decades ago that contributed to the building of the traditional development pattern of our cities and towns a uh, hundred plus years ago. What I think is interesting about that is that I actually see Gen Z um, anecdotally uh, as being very entrepreneurial but just kind of in a different sense and perhaps not in the same sense that people were a hundred years ago. This is a very different world, very different economy, but there are people who are already doing this kind of work in neighborhoods, small scale development projects, reinvesting in, in neighborhoods, building housing at small scales. I could see this actually being a really rewarding path to some people who are younger and interested in doing something a little bit different. Um, it, it could be very rewarding work. And I think that that's part of that overall messaging perspective that I think people are just not really as aware of all of the options that are available to them. To, so your point about kind of building this ecosystem and nurturing it and just making young people more aware, I think is a very important one. There are a lot of different things that, that need to happen and there's no one thing that's going to be a silver bullet here. I have it on the authority of people who know the trades, that there's a lot of room for change kind of within the trades too. Um, and I want to be humble in how I speak about that because that's not my background. And it's not my field. And I think that there are some associations in these fields with older people, maybe with a kind of 
cultural conservatism, small c, cultural conservatism that is um, not necessarily welcoming to um, to every sort of young person who might see this as a, a lucrative career path. And it's not at all clear that it's in the interest of, of incumbents in some of these fields to have more competition. You know, you can, if there's a scarcity of people who do what you do, you can, in theory, make more money doing what you do. There's a push that has to come from with, within, but also from outside, I think, um, toward helping more people find a way into these careers who want to and making it an environment in which they can see themselves being comfortable. I think that the picture is not as simple, you know, like there are people who would villainize trade unions or just like incumbents protecting their, their advantages. Like, well, we don't want, we, we want there to be a shortage because we're going to make more money. I don't think that's necessarily true. One of the other things that John Anderson wrote about that I found really compelling was people are, you know, they, they've got more requests for jobs than they can take. So there is that labor shortage, but you're also not necessarily making the money you'd like to be making because there are so many bottlenecks in the system. There are deals where like, if you're, you know, if, if you're an electrician and you, you have a job to do on somebody's construction site, but the HVAC guy needed to get there first and the HVAC guy is booked out for three months. Now you got to cancel your own appointment. Um, there, there are all these kind of cascading effects. We'll share a link, of course, in the post for this to that, that Anderson piece, because he kind of lays out how especially with the people doing the smaller scale jobs, all of a sudden you can find your project delayed by eight months because of this domino effect of I couldn't get the contractors I needed in the order I needed them. And big production home builders are at an advantage because they will have those people kind of on permanent retainer and they have the volume to do that. But what our cities really need and what we've documented over and over at Strong Towns is the the small scale infill development, the stuff that fits into the fabric of neighborhoods and thickens them up more organically. And that's not being done by these giant corporations. And it takes a lot more hustle. And often if you're a small scale developer, it takes personal relationships. You know a guy, you've got a guy for everything and you really value that relationship with your guy. Um, and I'm using guy kind of... Um, Colloquial here, your guy might be a woman. That's not that's not the issue here, but you've you've got someone for these jobs, and that relationship becomes really crucial to being able to do what you do. So when I say ecosystem, that's really what it's about: is that if we want to see the scale of rehabilitation and redevelopment in our cities that we need for them to be productive, high quality places, and we also need to address the shortage of the people who can physically do that hands on work. It's got to be about an ecosystem. It's got to be about people at every stage of that process who know each other, who work with each other, who show each other the ropes. And then that becomes a thing that you, you're exposed to in your community and you can see the path in. Yeah. Into doing the work. Yeah. It's almost like it's as much of a public policy issue as it is a relationships issue because it is something that totally needs nurturing and especially at the smaller scale. And anecdotally, that's something that locally here in Kansas City, we definitely, our small scale developers are really having challenges with because we have a lot of big projects going on and that sucks up a lot of the skilled labor that currently exists in the market. So yeah, but I mean, these are, these are huge challenges and, you know, probably no solution to them, but lots of different ways that it could shake out ultimately. Um, hopefully we get 
more skilled workers. <laughs> uh, that's the hope anyway. Well, with that, I think we'll end it there. Uh, before we end, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been reading, watching, listening to, or just really anything that's been kind of uh, taking our time these days. So Daniel, what have you been up to? This is, in all the times I've been on here with you, Abby, this might be my weirdest down zone yet, but um, (laughs) I think listeners or people who read me know that I have a toddler and my toddler has been playing with, with Duplos quite a bit. She got a couple big sets of them for Christmas and she does this kind of free form, you know, there's a big, a big flat board that you can stick these Duplos onto. And she started just building, she calls it her house. Um, and I've been playing this with her like multiple times a day. She just starts arranging the blocks and she'll stack some of them and she'll lay some of them out horizontally. Like I, I can't even begin to communicate this to her, but I start looking at these and they're like these weird abstract models of towns to me. Like that's what they look like. Like little, you know, think of like the Italian Riviera, like little oceanfront towns and you've got, you know, the, the tower here and you've got the little, um, you know, beach area over there. And I like, I'm just, my mind is going wild. as <laughs> she builds these things like picturing them as these little kind of abstracted models of traditional development. So I'm having a blast doing that. And she has no idea why I'm having fun. She's just happy that the dad is playing with her. Yeah. I'm looking at these right now on the internet. They're like giant Legos. That's pretty, yeah, they're, they're pretty Legos awesome. They're Legos that are um, accessible to, to younger kids. Wow. Um, and that are somewhat less pet painful to step on. I'm not looking forward to the days of, of proper Legos because I have heard from yeah. they are the worst thing you can step on. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I bet those really hurt to step on. Um, I wasn't a big Legos kid when I was younger, but these actually remind me of like, I don't even know what they were, but when we were kids, we had these like really giant, they were like giant blocks and you could build like forts with them, um, which I is had pretty a big cool. Set of wooden, wooden blocks of different shapes that we just called the blocks and like a whole bookcase in, in my childhood home just devoted to the blocks. And had hundreds of hours of entertainment from when totally. I, was two, I was five or six. Like all, all I, I children's toys with bells and whistles and little music that plays. Like who needs that? Get yeah. Your well, that'll drive you, that'll drive you crazy. Into the skilled trades that way too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's see, you're doing your part already. So congratulations <laughs> to you. Um, I guess I have kind of a weird down zone. I wasn't. I've just been you know, super busy over the past couple of weeks and really not doing a ton of stuff. You know, it's the winter. Um, but tomorrow it's going to be 50 degrees in Kansas city. And I'm doing something that I've never done in Kansas city before, which is to go to the zoo. And I've not been to the zoo in a, I mean, not here anyway, but even since I was a kid, um, I've been getting really interested in hippos um and watching a lot of videos of them i don't think you i don't think people realize how dangerous and terrifying they are they're very cute but they run underwater and they chase boats and like are very territorial even though they don't i don't think they eat meat but they just like will attack animals if they come anywhere near their space so I've been really interested in that recently, and um, I'm hoping to go see one tomorrow on Saturday. We're recording this on a Friday, so 
um, yeah, that's basically my plan. Another thing um, is that at the Kansas City Zoo, they just had a birth of a baby eastern black rhino, which um, apparently is a very, very endangered species. So um, I'm hoping that I'll get to see it. It's a baby, so they may not um, have it out, you know, in the areas where the public can see them. But I'm hoping that um, it'll be walking around and I'll get a chance to spot it. So that's pretty special. I have to ask you, are you familiar with the story of Pablo Escobar's hippos? Uh, no. <laughs> um, he had this gigantic sprawling estate um, in Colombia in the 1990s, sort of at the height of his power um, as, as a drug lord. You know, he ran the Medellin cartel. And after Escobar's downfall, um, this gigantic country estate that he owned was kind of left abandoned for a number of years. And he had hippos. He had a bunch of exotic wildlife, but he had hippos and they just sort of went native and they reproduced and it got to the point where the authorities were trying to figure out what the heck do we do with these hippos? Because Whoa. as you said, they're incredibly dangerous territorial animals. Yeah. Um, they're very dangerous and they're and fast. They're there in Colombia. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't remember how that story ended, but I remember being fascinated by something I read about it years ago. Oh, uh, after this call, I'm going to find out how that story ends because I'm really interested. I wonder if there is like a population of hippos that are just running around Colombia that are from Pablo Escobar. They're not native to South America, are they? Not at all. And I no, don't I know think if so. ever ended up um, containing them all, but I remember it was this. Um, it was this big dilemma, like, what do we do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to even have the, I guess, <laughs> the skills to catch them, and then where do you take them? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm terrified of hippos now that I've been watching uh, videos, but um, if anybody's interested, I would recommend going on YouTube and looking up hippos eating pumpkins, um, because when they're in uh, zoos, people basically just like mount a pumpkin in its mouth and they smash them. And it actually looks just like the hungry, hungry hippos child game. If you remember that, I mean, that's literally how they eat. They just kind of like uh, clumsily chomp on watermelon and pumpkins and all kinds of large gourds. So <laughs> large gourds. Okay. I think that yep. each one of us now knows what we're going to Google immediately after <laughs> Pretty much. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you had a weird down zone because I did too. Um, So I'm pretty pumped for tomorrow though. Um, Well, we can end it there. Thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me today. Thank you, Abby. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, bye.